The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. What you missed this week, I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. It is the weekend, and in normal times, many of us would be spending our weekend at or watching some kind of sporting event. In the new normal, everything from Little League to the NBA is canceled. Well, this week we got some hope of sports returning when we learned that golf will become the first professional sport to resume play. The PGA announced its Charles Schwab Challenge will go on as scheduled in early June, but without fans. We spoke about this with George Pine, founder and CEO of Bruin Sports Capital. We began by asking him if this would serve as a test case for the rest of the sports world and if we're all going to become golf fans now. Well, I think we're all looking for something to follow and watch, and in the course, sports is terrific reality TV. So I think it's great for fans. It's great for uh, the PGA Tour. It's probably very safe. You know, you're playing outside. You have uh, players that naturally socially distance anyway in the game. So I think it's a good uh, first step for for sports. I, you know, other sports like tennis and auto racing probably fail uh, are in the same place. And then I think it'll be followed by baseball, hockey, basketball, and soccer you know, later on in the summer. So what do you think about that, George, with regards to some of those sports where you do have a large congregation of fans like football, college football, uh, baseball? Do you think it's possible that uh, those leagues can uh, play either without fans or with some sort of reduced uh, attendance and still uh, draw the viewership uh, on television in order to make it profitable? I think so. I mean, uh, you know, sports make up, 90 of the top 100 uh, programs on television. So I think there'll be a real pent-up demand to watch sports. Will it be the same uh, without fans versus with fans? No, it won't be the same. But I think there is pent-up demand, and I think that you know, you'll need innovation in terms of viewing. But I think a, a, a fair number of people will tune in to watch their, their favorite teams and players play. Okay, pent-up demand, I understand, uh, but the economics will certainly change, especially on the ground, because a lot of these uh, places, a lot of these college towns rely on attendance to drive their local economy. Businesses are dependent upon it. Um, what does this mean for the schools, for the cities that they're in, uh, in terms of uh, the changes that we'll possibly make to college football and how it gets broadcast? Well, listen, we're hopeful that college football plays, and of course they're, they're looking at a number of contingency plans, either playing on time, delaying, or in the spring. And college football really is the number two sport in America, so it's important socially and economically. But as you point out, Scarlett, economically, college football is uh, very important to America, starting with the schools, because football underwrites 70 to 80% of the revenue in the athletic department. So all the other sports outside of basketball, for the most part, are underwritten by football. And without that revenue at the schools, that will put enormous pressure 
on those institutions at a time when they're going to feel uh, pressure from state funding and also tuition pressure. On top of that, you know, take about a, a regular game in Alabama, $20 million of economic impact uh, per weekend. So in small towns in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Ohio, and Wisconsin, these games have provide enormous economic impact to the local community. A New Year's Day game is $93 million per game of economic impact. The national championship game was $150 million to $200 million. So the economic impact at the local level in the schools of college football specifically is significant, not to mention all of the service industries and jobs that are in and around the game that people take kind of take for granted, you know, concessions, consumer products, other elements. College football is very impactful. Yeah, uh, well said, George. Uh, I am curious with regards to uh, the broadcasting side of this. Uh, we've seen over on ESPN over the last uh, few weeks, uh, they've actually been broadcasting things like eSports and uh, other types of sports that probably typically wouldn't make it into primetime television. Is it possible that we could see some of those sports uh, maybe uh, get into the zeitgeist in a way that they might not have done uh, had we not been in this health crisis? Romain, you're exactly right. One of the things, eSports in particular, uh, as an example, NASCAR has a high uh, racing game that's drawing 900,000 to a million people per viewing. So absolutely, uh, this opportunity will provide new opportunities for other sports. And also, I think it's going to provide innovate, innovation. Every business uh, has challenges in this world today. And everybody's got to pivot and innovate. And so I think you're going to see a lot of innovation that probably will sustain itself past the, uh, past the virus. All right, we talked about college football. We talked about broadcasting. So that brings us up to the big game, which is football, pro football. Um, it doesn't begin until the fall, so they have some time here. But how do you see this shaking out? Because my understanding is if the pro football players don't play, they don't get paid. So right now, their interests are aligned with the owners. Both parties, both sides want to get going and want to get their season going so they can get paid and things can return to normal. Um, talk about the economics at play there. Well, that's right. I mean, well, first of all, you know, nobody's going to do anything that's not in everybody's best health interest, players or fans. But assuming that's adequately addressed, playing games uh, without fans, you know, at least provides television revenue. And different sports have different levels. The NFL has the, the, the most significant level of television revenue and pretty robust. So that'll be a viable business for them. But there's no way to understate the economic impact of the not having the live gate at these games. Um, tickets, concessions, consumer products, suites, local businesses, and the service industry around the live events. Uh, that's a big industry, and that's going to be dislocated. Right now, severely, it doesn't exist. And when the games come back on television, you're still not going to have that industry. And that's going to be a, 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 a big issue. Not just in the short term, I think this is a 12 to 36 month uh, situation where live events, uh, the live yeah. event industry is going to be impacted. Now, how, the only question is going to be is how severe is that impact? And that's something that should not be taken lightly, particularly around the, you know, around the Barclays Center. There's a whole industry that lives off of events at the Barclays Center. And so, you know, that's going to be impacted and it's a big impact. 
So, George, I'm curious, so with regards to some of the contracts, the player contracts, obviously you have the NFL draft coming up, but you have a lot of uh, players who are either in free agency or, or outside of their contracts. Do you think that that will be affected in terms of what they're able to negotiate uh, because, of, uh, because of the slowdown that we have now uh, in either games not being played or delayed? I don't think for the NFL for this year, because it's formulaic and it's based on last year's revenue, that it will have an impact for this year. I do think, I mean, you, you saw today Major League Soccer is renegotiating their deal with their players who, who are going to have to take a significant cut in order to play the games because they're not going to have the live gate revenue. Same thing with baseball, where not having that live gate revenue, it's not a, a financially viable to play the games without a reduction from the players. So I think every sport is different. I think in the case of football, it's less affected versus some of the other, other sports. George, final question to you. Uh, you mentioned that you see basketball and hockey coming back. It'll be, it should be playoff season right now. What will the playoffs look like? Will they just head straight into the playoffs and it'll be a truncated version of what we normally see? I, again, I think that's to be determined. I'm, I'm pretty confident that both the NHL and the NBA are looking at ways to innovate. And again, some of these innovations may sustain uh, the, this summer. But I think you, you're, you're going to see uh, innovation and pivoting to try to put together a compelling product, an incredible product, but a timely product. And trying to check all those uh, boxes will be difficult. But again, it provides an opportunity for people to experiment on things that they otherwise never would have been able to. And there may be some good ideas that come out of this that last for a long time. Much of the U.S. and Europe are living under stay-at-home orders right now in an attempt to quell the spread of the coronavirus. But one country is trying a drastically different and even controversial approach. Sweden is not locking down, and instead, the government there is putting the onus on its citizens to take responsibility themselves. Jens Norvig, founder and CEO of Exante Data, has turned his data tracking and modeling expertise to track the virus outbreak, including in Sweden. We asked Jens what the data said about Sweden's approach and how successful it's been. Yeah, so uh, there's been some pictures circulating in the media where we see people still going to restaurants in Sweden, right? So that's sort of a very clear picture of something that's very different from New York City, for example, where essentially nobody is going to any public places at all. Uh, the other thing that's very different in Sweden is that uh, people do go to work. So if you can work from home, you do. But there's a lot of people who still go into the office and they even use uh, public transport. So a big difference compared to many other countries. It's not that Sweden is not doing anything, but they've deliberately gone down a more moderate route. And it is very important to see whether the template that has been followed in Sweden can be a success. Because we're at a point in time where uh, a lot of countries have seen the peak in new cases, right? So European countries generally had a peak in new cases at the end of March. In the U.S., I think we put in a peak over the last week. So everybody's thinking about how can we reopen, and therefore having specific countries that we can use as a template is really important. Yeah, so I mean, that's a, it's an interesting template, Jens. I, I'm, I am curious, though, because when we sort of look at some of those nations like Sweden, we always have to take into account uh, they are much smaller populations, in some cases much more homogenous populations. I'm wondering, when you use that as a template, uh, on a wider scale for a country like the U.S. with 300-plus million people or a country like China with a billion people, how does that hold up then? 
Yeah, so I think uh, certainly with the U.S., it's it's very tricky to make uh, nationwide uh, conclusions, right? Because this is a country that's made up of very different states, and obviously New York State has its uh, dynamics. Some of the southern states have totally different dynamics. So I don't think you can kind of use it in a blanket way. But I think the first instance in which this will be used is for countries like Germany. Uh, Germany already announced that they're going to do some form of reopening Small shops uh, next week will reopen. Schools will reopen in early May. That is actually following the template from Sweden, where the schools have been open uh, all along. And uh, therefore, I think uh, the European countries will be the first ones to sort of see if they can take some of the steps that, that Sweden have been taking. That, that the main tricky bit is that it has not been without any problems in Sweden, right? So they've done certain things to make it kind of sustainable social distancing, something they can do for the long haul. But it is having an impact in terms of the amount of cases they have. And I think one thing that we're tracking very closely in our data is that how many is in the ICU. And that's been going down in a lot of European countries for about two weeks, but it's still going up, right? So these policies are having an effect. It's a tricky balance to strike. So that's interesting uh, because that was going to be my next question. Um, the, the whole effort of social distancing is to mitigate uh, how stressed the hospital system will be, uh, the facilities will be, and to make sure that they're not overwhelmed. The ICU admissions might have gone up in Sweden, but are they at a point where they've run out of ICU beds, for instance? Can they still handle the load that's coming in? And what does that tell us about yeah, so what that, it might look like in other yeah. countries as they unlock their social distancing? Yes, this, I think, is some of the most important data to track. Uh, So at the moment, uh, the amount of people who are admitted to uh, the ICU in in, in Sweden is sort of growing a couple of percent per day, two, three, four percent per day. So it's still going up, but at a relatively slow growth rate. But it's very different from other countries in Europe where the amount of people who are in hospital and is in the ICU are going down, right? Uh, So in terms of capacity, we believe that there's probably about 25% spare capacity in the Swedish system. That doesn't account military facilities and so forth. So they're still on a path where they can handle it for a while. But it's very important whether you grow a couple of percent per day or whether it jumps up to 10%, then they're going to run into capacity constraints. So I think really the next one to two weeks is going to be very, very crucial to figure out whether the Swedish experiment is a success or whether they have to recalibrate If we can say in a couple of weeks' time it was a success, then other countries in Europe will say, okay, what Sweden did, we can do too. And it is going to be a template for the degree of opening we're going to be seeing. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The federal government's $349 billion small business rescue program is already running out of money and waiting on Congress to make a deal to replenish it. We spoke with Adam Pritzker, founder and CEO of Assembled Brands. It's a lender and holding company of consumer brands about his work to make sure that small businesses are receiving their loans from the federal government. 
We began by asking what he's hearing from small business owners. Maybe I can give a little background on kind of how I got here uh, to the world of small business. So, you know, early in my career, I founded a small business called General Assembly, where, among other things, I led capital raising efforts, including accessing the credit markets. And after that business was sold, having seen firsthand some of the real inefficiencies around small business lending, I launched a platform that you just mentioned in 2018 to focus on small business lending. And since launching, we've lent to dozens of small businesses. About 10% of those businesses have received funding, the rest have not. And, you know, having had a seat at both sides of the table as a borrower and a lender, it's clear to me exactly why these critical relief funds are not getting to small businesses that really vitally need them. Okay, so Adam, the solution you're proposing here then is to help out the smaller banks, the community banks, the regional banks that are really in charge of dispersing a lot of the funds to the actual small business customers. Um, give us a little bit of color first on how you see that proceeding, how, how it's actually happening on the ground, because the technology is not standard across all the different uh, community banks and regional banks, is it? That's exactly right. So let me put the current situation in a macro perspective. So last year, the SBA guaranteed $25 billion worth of loans, and the top 100 lenders accounted for about half that volume. In the last two weeks, the last numbers I've seen, the SBA has guaranteed $290 billion worth of loans, which is up $50 billion since Monday, uh, across about 5,000 lenders. And, you know, while those numbers are staggering, uh, you know, what's alarming is that only a very small fraction of that amount has made it to the end user uh, for the exact reasons that you mentioned, Scarlett, which is that there's this huge logjam. And the reason for the logjam, uh, kind of like many issues in, in this pandemic, is a logistical issue, um, which is basically that when these small businesses reach out to banks, they have to send a PDF uh, they have to sign a DocuSign. They're emailing a zip file. You know, the bank receives that zip file and manually validates the info. If there's a problem or a discrepancy, the bank has to call the borrower. Once the loan um, is settled, the bank manually enters the information into the SBA system. Once the SBA approves, they alert the bank, and then the bank manually emails the borrower a promissory note. And so, you know, what you just heard me referring to is, PDFs, zip files, emails, phone calls, as really the core methods of communication at a time that half of America can't physically leave their home to go to work or a bank. So, Adam, is this, is this an issue then mostly of tech, technological limitations, or is this more an issue of the regulations that SBA and the federal government requires in order to get this done, and how can either of those be rectified? Well, I, I think what we're focused on is the, is the technology issue. Uh, uh, it's in part a regulatory issue, but in, in a very large part, it's actually the logistics of getting all of this money to the small businesses. So that's why today we're announcing the launch of Assembled Financial, which you can find at assemblefinancial.com. And we're working directly with the SBA, and we're in the process of actually embedding elite software developers you know, who work at the Department of Defense, at Apple, at Goldman Sachs, into a variety of these financial institutions. And we're working to help make their existing systems as seamless and efficient as you know, an iPhone in your pocket and really help them upgrade that tech backbone using 
know, automation, cloud computing, and machine learning. Uh, and, and, and that's really just a critical need right now that, that banks adopt these new technologies. So Adam, what you're proposing here is to improve and build upon the current system, perhaps make it more efficient, not necessarily replace it wholesale. Um, give us a sense of the timeline here in terms of the solution that you're proposing. Is this a platform that uh, is just going to be in place for the duration of the small business loan program from the application process through the actual money being paid out? Or is this something you envision to last longer? And if it's the latter, what value do you add going forward? Sure. Um, I think the immediate need is the PPP program. And, and for us, that's really a civic duty. And there's really not very much time until businesses run out of cash. So we're four to five weeks in. A typical small business has about six to eight weeks of cash to give you a sense of, of where we are. I think beyond that immediate need of getting critical funding to small businesses, there's also an opportunity to vastly improve you know, integrations between banks and thousands of tech and consumer companies who are looking to launch their own financial services. And so, you know, this really is a bank, bank's opportunity to win or lose these customers. I mean, they've really got an opportunity now to bring technology in, to bring third parties in, and to really help open up their systems to get money out both to small businesses and to individuals using technology. So, Adam, I'm curious about uh, the money that is going to potentially eventually get into the hands of these companies. Is this money primarily going to be used kind of as a stopgap to deal with whatever uh, short-term payroll issues and other funding issues they might have? Or is there a chance for them to actually use this money to sort of, I guess, jumpstart their businesses once the economy sort of fully reopens and we start to get uh, more consumer activity out there in the space? Well, I, I think the answer to that question um, is both. Um, you know, these businesses uh, are risking being permanently shuttered. We're talking about 50% of the restaurants in the United States going permanently out of business. And so really, uh, these are emergency funds uh, for, for payroll, um, but also for inventory, for generally running the business, for helping it you know, open back up. Uh, and, and it's just an immediate need. Then we spoke with Catherine Judge, a professor at Columbia Law School, about why she thinks the government intervention to shield big companies from the pandemic will give rise to moral hazard and increase the corporate sector's fragility. So as a starting point, it is certainly true that we are facing a, a crisis of epic proportions Massive government intervention was necessary to address the public health crisis. And going along with that, we do need very, very significant government support to try to make sure that productive enterprises manage to keep paying employees and remain well-positioned to provide goods and services once the economy comes back online. So broad government support was needed. The challenge is in how we're going about providing that support, and in particular, we're relying far too heavily on the Fed and Treasury putting the money through Fed facilities. And as a result, it's going to the wrong companies and on the wrong terms. It's going to large companies when it's the small and mid-sized enterprises that are most in need of help and are most likely to face that, that value-destroying liquidation if they don't get the cash they need. So it's going to the wrong companies. And second, for those large companies, uh, as you pointed out, they've taken on record amounts of debt in, in recent years, 
And what we actually should want to do is to make sure that the business keeps going, the employees keep getting paid, but that shareholders and creditors absorb the risks that they've contractually agreed to absorb, which includes tail risks like this pandemic. So, so the real concern is that longer term, companies are going to have a strong incentive, right. just as they did over the, the last decade, to take on too much debt. So, Catherine, Romain Bostic here. I'm a little curious, though, as to how you sort of move in the manner that maybe is a little bit more responsible when speed was so necessary, at least in, in this particular instance. Uh, I mean, we relied on the Fed largely because there was no fiscal response, at least not immediately. Uh, and even the fiscal response, which was cobbled together relatively quickly, um, ended up being imperfect, probably because of the speed at which we needed to do it. What's the solution here? How do we make sure we do this in a way the next time, when the next crisis hits, where we don't have to rely on, the, on those types of backstops? So there's, that's a critical point. So, I mean, it is really important that the speed was the most important thing, and aggressive action was by far the appropriate thing to prioritize. So perfection is not the aim. We needed to get money out there. We needed to get money out there quickly. And so it makes sense that the Fed came in in a big way. What they've been doing to stabilize short-term markets, what they've been doing in terms of monetary policy, are exactly the types of policies that we need the, the Fed to engage in. But once we shifted to that fiscal support, Congress had a choice to make, and one of the big challenges is in requiring the $454 billion in fiscal aid, putting airlines to the side, uh, to go through Fed facilities. They were making a choice, whether they realized it or not, that was going to bias where that aid went in ways that are suboptimal. And again, they didn't fully trust Treasury, so they wanted Fed there as a check, <clears throat> but the, the authority that Fed is using means it's going to have to care about credit risk, so more money is going to go to big companies. And more importantly, what you really might want is to force some of these large companies to go through a reorganization, force the creditors to take some losses to keep the business alive, and the Fed's not allowed to do that through this authority. So I agree with you that, that speed here was the priority, um, and that longer term we need to think about the infrastructure and what infrastructure we have in place to provide small and mid-sized enterprises more support. But, but I think more can be done even this time around. This crisis is, is not over yet. We're yeah. looking at another you know, 12, 18, 24 months and trying to figure out how we could wind down some of these institutions, keep the businesses alive, but, but restructure the financing. I think it's, it's not too late yet. As you point out, this thing is far from over. It could be another 12 to 18 months, which means we might get more Fed programs as well. The Fed has been uh, acting, it's been the, the, the lender first resort, the, the, the one that we go to or the one that jumps in first whenever there's a problem. You say that the Fed's various measures basically amounts to a big bet that the economy is going to have a V-shaped recovery. If it doesn't, that's where all the Fed's programs could fall apart or have really bad consequences. Can you summarize for us why really quickly? I think the, the concern there is really about the long-term independence of the Federal Reserve. So we have a Federal Reserve that has incredible powers and was able to move so quickly precisely because it's built up its credibility over decades as an as a institution that we trust because they're not making political decisions, they're really trying to make sure they're helping out the economy as a whole. Right now, because they are forced to being take, do so much more than, than a central bank should be asked to do, they're having to make these very difficult judgment calls, 
when they're looking at states and, and municipalities. And again, they're institutionally better designed to help out big companies than the small and mid-sized enterprises that are really more in need of help. And so longer term, there's going to be inequities in terms of who survives. And, and those are the types of decisions that political actors should have to make and that political actors should be accountable for. And so the, the Federal Reserve long-term political independence is going to yeah. potentially be threatened if it, if it keeps having to make these decisions. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.